Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Watch, warning, advisory. These are just a few of the words you may hear a meteorologist say, but do you know exactly what they mean and how you should prepare if you hear them? Today's guest on Weather Geeks, Dr. Laura Myers, is a social scientist and current director of the Center for Advanced Public Safety at the University of Alabama. Part of Dr. Myers' work is to study human behavior in relation to severe weather events before, during, and after the storm. Welcome to Weather Geeks, Dr. Myers. Thank you, Marshall. Well, you know, I say welcome, but we've had you on the television version of the show, so I really should say welcome back to Weather Geeks. And as a reminder, I know a little of your background, but our listeners don't. And I always ask how you became a weather geek. And I think you do enough in our world of weather now that you are a certified weather geek. So how did you get into the weather part of what you're doing? Well, it really came through emergency management. Um, I'm a criminologist as a social scientist and studied and worked and trained in criminal justice for most of my career. And after 9-11, there was a real interest in emergency management education. And so I started teaching and researching in emergency management, which led me directly to the weather and the National Weather Service. And they were a big stakeholder in what emergency management does. And right about that time, the April 27th, 2011 tornadoes happened. And they were very interested in why people did what they did in an event like that. And that began my interest in weather. And that's how I became a weather geek. And, you know, I, I want to give you a little bit of Dr. Meyer's background. And I, I don't know if I knew this or maybe I had forgotten this, but she's a fellow Seminole like me. Uh, she has a BA in sociology from Clemson University and then master's and PhD in criminology from Florida State University. And as you mentioned and heard her mention, she's been a professor of criminal justice and emergency management and various stops along the way and is currently a research scientist at the Center for Advanced Public Safety. Tell us a little bit about the Center for Advanced uh, Public Safety at the University of Alabama. Well, the Center for Advanced Public Safety uh, really works with all kinds of first responder agencies, state agencies, local agencies about making their processes more efficient. And my role in all of that has really been to do the social science research about the decision making process and the information that people use to make their decisions like evacuation decisions and, you know, what kind of information do you need um, and also also digitizing that information, doing things as data-driven strategies. I'm currently working with the Alabama Emergency Management Agency, and they're doing a lot of work along those lines, trying to really digitize their processes and make more real-time decisions with real-time data. Now, I want to just dive right in. Uh, our producers you know, prime the the show with a few conversation notes. And this is a broad and big one that we could dig into for not just 45 minutes, but literally 45 days. But what do you see from your lens 
are some of the biggest issues at the intersection of communicating severe weather risk and kind of the world that you operate in? And that can go in many different directions because I know there are struggles with color, with the way we use words. I know you were involved in a study that even looked at how whether people perhaps can recognize their county. Uh, on a map and so forth. So I just, I wanna dive into all of that at this point, but if you were to sort of zero in on your biggest concern and what keeps you up at night at this point, uh, what would you say? Really the connection of the public to weather information. Um, every time we have an event anywhere, it's a matter of who is connected to the enterprise that's disseminating the information and who's not connected. And there's a lot of reasons for them not to be connected. It may be that, you know, they're going about their business and they're not paying attention or they don't have time to pay attention or they're not really sure what they should be connected to. And there's, you know, a lot of issues like language challenges, you know, they may be speaking English as a second um, language, and so they're really not sure what they're hearing. Um, so there's translation issues. Um, there's also vulnerability involved. You know, there's a lot of vulnerable populations out there that because of their vulnerabilities, they're not even sure what to do with the weather information. So when they're told they need to take shelter or they need to evacuate, they don't know if they have options to do that. So my biggest concern is connecting people to the information in a way they can use that information. And, and I know much of your work has been in severe weather space, tornado space. So you're based there in Alabama, and I know you have a really good relationship with our good friend, mutual friend, James Spann. Shout out to James Spann, by the way, and the folks over at Weather Brains. Um, but I want to kind of circle back to a recent high-profile weather event in Florida, which was Hurricane Ian, because that had many challenges. And I, again, I know you probably haven't looked at it, but I, I know you're aware of it and maybe have some thoughts on sort of this broad notion, because I want to start with hurricanes and then we're going to pivot to severe weather and tornado discussions. But what are your general thoughts on sort of the communication or social science issues around how we communicate a storm like Ian? Well, with hurricanes, I think the big thing is people understanding their risk in a hurricane. And with Ian and many previous storms, the issue is trying to understand the cone of uncertainty and where you are in relation to that cone of uncertainty and where the impacts are actually going to be. And I think that was the case with Ian is because as, as that one moved and started coming um, toward Florida, there was a lot of question about where it was going to go. The you know cone um, was you know going in a particular direction. At one point, it looked like it was going toward Tampa. Tampa was trying to prepare, and so people do this psychological justification of it's not coming to me, and so they try to focus in on that cone and say, well, I'm not inside the cone, and they don't realize that those impacts are gonna far, you know, be far outside that cone. And they're also not generally aware of the different types of impacts. You know, you've got wind, you've got storm surge, you've got um, inland flooding, you've got, you know, the, the tornadoes that spawn off of the hurricanes. And I think that was the biggest issue with Ian is people thinking they were not gonna be impacted. And then there was the issue of just how big that storm was, how strong that storm was. We're having much stronger storms now. They're coming in at higher category levels and people thinking they can survive those. 
And so, and I have done a lot of work with Ian so far and plan to do some more work with Ian. So I can answer a lot of questions. Well, I, I, I know that you had, and so I'm, I guess my next sort of natural question, given what you just said is, what camp are you in, in terms of the solution space? Because I've heard the entire range from let's get rid of the code to let's modify it in some way to let's do a better job with sort of describing the impacts and the fact that that hurricane is just not a little dot or circle on the map. So where do you fall in terms of moving us into the solution space? Yeah, I think the solution is to do something with the cone so that the public understands and decision makers, because I think decision makers have the same problem. So when they're trying to make the decision to evacuate, they need a better understanding. And so I think it's a modification of the cone. I think it's it's also education about the fact that the cone is just that. It's the path of the storm. So there needs to be more information. There needs to be more graphics that illustrate where the impacts will be, what the impacts are going to be about, you know, because when we talk about the difference between inland flooding and storm surge and, you know, what that actually means to people, I think there's a lot of different ways we can convey that and communicate that. And that really comes back to our weather enterprise and the broadcast meteorologists and everybody that's putting that information out there. They're the ones that engage that education. And I think that's going on anyway. I think they're taking the cone of uncertainty and they're they're working with that and they're trying to explain that. And what's missing is the connection. Not everybody's hearing that and they're not hearing it far enough in advance. And even if they are hearing it, again, they may not have a way to get out of the way. And so even if they do understand they're going to be impacted, they may not think there's anything they can do about it. And so I think we just need to do more education. We need to develop products that show those different um, impacts and the scope of it. And also, I think a big issue is the fact that those storms are going to wiggle. Um, Ken Graham, the director of the uh, National Weather Service, talks about how these storms will wiggle. And that makes a big difference geographically when they wiggle. And I think, you know, the public needs to understand that and realize that they think they may be safe, but that could change very quickly. People tend to anchor on the information very early and they think, well, it's going another direction. I'm going to be safe. And they don't check back in. And so I think there's a, a lot of work needs to be done with products and information. Okay. It's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Laura Myers from the University of Alabama and the Center for Advanced Public Safety, or CAPS, talking about communication within the context of weather and climate and this sort of realm that I think many of us in the weather, climate, and water enterprise recognize, which is that we can have the perfect forecast, quote unquote, in terms of the models and all of the uh, satellite information and radar, but if people didn't get that information, uh, did not consume it properly, or did not understand it, was it a good forecast at all? And so I want to pivot now with Dr. Myers as we are rapidly approaching the what many consider the peak in the uh, severe weather season, particularly here in the southeast and parts of the plains and upper Midwest. Um, you often do hear, it came without warning, or I didn't know, and you see it in media headlines. And, and the reality is, and as a meteorologist and as a steward of our community, it's rare these days that there isn't some type of outlook or watch or warning information in the days or hours leading up to these events. But as you know, uh, in the sort of timeframes that people perhaps act on, maybe people didn't get that information. So uh, I just want to get your thoughts on how we approach or sort of fix some of the issues that we know are out there in terms of severe weather warnings? Well, I think the big thing is advanced information, kind of pre-season. And with severe weather, we're pretty much going with a year-round season now. It used to be, a, in my area, a spring season. And then it was like, no, we really have two seasons. And now those two seasons have blended together. And so it's really kind of year-round outreach and trying to reach everybody where they are. And so, you know, we've always used television. We've started using social media. Social media has been, been a big help in reaching people and try to reach them where they're at. Social media is not a first alert technology, but it's a great educational tool. And so there's a lot of people who follow the weather enterprise, different agencies, different um, broadcast meteorologists, uh, the Weather Channel on social media. And it's a great opportunity to reach people we might not reach through other means. But then we also have to take it to them. And so that means talking to a local emergency managers in our states to find out who are the people who are disconnected, who are your vulnerable populations, and how can we go to them and how can we reach to them the best to educate them about how do you get your um, watches and warnings? How do you make a plan? What do you do about those things? And that also helps the enterprise understand why people do what they do in an event. And so that helps them plan better. That helps them figure out, well, this is how how I need to disseminate this information and how I need to get it out. For example, if you're trying to get information to a Spanish-speaking population, how do you get that information translated and where do you send that information so you don't lose your lead time? Yeah, and you know, and I know there's quite a bit of work ongoing right now in this language translation within NOAA, and, and we've had um, uh, Joseph Trujillo Falcone on who's doing quite a bit of work in that area. But what about the other languages? I mean, I, again, I guess it's just that the focus now is because of the, the predominant sort of uh, spoken language other than English right now is Spanish. Um, but I mean, is there ongoing work or thought process concerning people that may speak French or um, Mandarin or other languages? 
There is. And, and that's a, you know, part of understanding a community, you know, what populations reside in your community. Um, so along the, the coastlines, we have the Vietnamese populations and, you know, different populations that do work in coastal areas. So understanding that you would be able to translate into those languages that, that populate your communities. And that's no easy task. Um, you know, translating this information in a way is meaningful can be very difficult. And so there's a lot of work to be done, but it's not just in the words. It's also in the graphics and the colors and the imagery. And so a lot of times if words are not getting across, it's the imagery that's getting across. Yeah. You know, I want to present a little mini case study to you that happened in my own world just recently here in Gwinnett County, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. Um, we had severe weather rolling through. It was a typical quasi-linear convective system or QLCS that you and I know we see quite a bit of in this in the South, and they, they can be problematic for spinning out tornadoes. Now, our school system that my kids are in, or my kid uh, is in now, the other one's off in college, um, preemptively elected to cancel um, uh, afternoon school activities. And I actually thought it was the right decision given what the meteorological conditions were showing. And we had tornadoes all throughout the metro Atlanta area that given day. So the forecast essentially did verify. However, there were, were no tornadoes in Gwinnett County. And so I saw the narrative, why did we cancel this? Why did, why did we, the school system do that? Nothing happened, I went about my day. But yet the threat was there, and we certainly could have had a tornado in Gwinnett County. It just happened that we had tornadoes in essentially every county around us. So, I mean, what is the psychology or the social science of how we address that type of narrative, which I know you're familiar with as well? Yeah, and, and it, it has always been an issue. And what has happened over the last several years is the weather enterprise has done a really good job of explaining that. They've explained, you know, probabilistic forecasting. They've talked about how, you know, they can tell you what the threat is, but trying to explain probability is the big thing. And so what we've found in the research that we've done, we've talked to people directly who've been going through events and they've heard the broadcast meteorologists and and the other um, you know, professionals that are disseminating this information talk about the threats and the fact that it may not happen at your location. And most people are good with that because they understand it, because they have a relationship with these trusted sources. They understand it may not happen. They understand that they may go to wall-to-wall -wall coverage and it may not happen, and they're glad it doesn't happen. The problem is you hear from the very small percentage of people who are going to complain about it. And that's what I'm always telling the weather enterprise. It's like about 90% of people are very happy that it didn't happen to them. And they were really glad that you provided this information so that they could be aware, they could take proper action if they needed to. And they're good with that. And we've got a ton of data on people who are very happy with that, understand it. And it's because they understand it because of their relationship with those trusted sources. Yeah, trusted sources. That's why I always say that, you know, even as we have apps and as we have automated systems, uh, I don't think uh, our local sort of TV meteorologists or weather channel experts are going anywhere anytime soon because people do rely on that. And I'm, I'm sure, that, as you noted, there is research that sort of supports this notion that uh, people want to hear from a trusted voice, particularly in sort of the, these high threat situations. 
I want to pivot to some of your research on color and maps and sort of these more symbolism aspects of communicating the risk. What, what have you found over the years? Color is, is a real issue for people because of the simplification of these graphics. If there's too many colors in it, then people are trying to figure out, well, what do those colors mean? Uh, what does it mean at my location? And so that's a big issue. The more color you have involved, the more confusing it's going to be. And it also confuses people's ability to figure out what does the color mean at a particular location? They're trying to figure out where they are on that graphical map. And that's a big issue because I get a lot of people who say, why do people keep asking what's gonna happen at my location? I'm showing these graphical maps. And it's not that people don't know where they're at on a map, it's that they haven't really focused on it. So when you put that graphic up there, they're trying to figure it out. And by the time they figure it out and then look at the color and then try to interpret the color, the graphic's gone. And they may not ever figure it out because it, there's just too much going on on the map. And so what we recommend and have been for a long time is put out a blank county map in advance of a weather event coming in and remind people, figure out where you are on this blank map before we add the colors, before we add the impacts and the timing so that when we put those things on there, you'll be able to pinpoint exactly where you are and what all this information means. And then the color part of it is people are socialized to a traffic light. They are socialized to green, orange, and red. And so the majority of your population are looking for those colors and they associate traffic light meaning with those colors. So green is good. And in weather maps, green is flooding. <laughs> and so there's that translation of what it means to the public. And so you have to educate the public on what your colors mean, what colors you're going to use and what those colors mean. And there's a lot of work being done on should we even be using green to convey a threat like a flood if people think green is good. So there's a lot of work being done on that. There's also work being done on all these other colors, like if you go to red, to magenta, to black, to, you know, really convey more seriousness than red, then, you know, do people understand that? And there's been, you know, a lot of people who say, yeah, I get that. But it's a very small percentage of people because most people really kind of get down to those easy categories of information. That's the psychology of it. And a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I get it. I get all these different colors and I can study all that. But that's really a small percentage of people who want to take the time to do that. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, we talk about weather geeks. Weather geeks are people who sit there and they study this, they look at this, they analyze this. I talk to people in the public all the time that do that. I mean, they study this stuff, they look at this stuff. You know, I call them weather weenies. They're, yeah, you know, we, call, we, we embrace that term too. Shout out to any weather weenies and weather geeks listening. We, we love you. Absolutely. You know, because they're on it. They're, you know, looking at it, they're figuring it out. And they give us good feedback, too, about, you know, what is meaningful, what is confusing, that sort of thing. But most people don't take the time to do that because they're doing so many different things. And weather may not be their priority. 
And so knowing that, you've got to figure out how do I reach the masses? How do I reach the people who are really busy and are not going to sit there and take the time to do that? They don't have the time to do that. They have other things going on. They have a crying baby that they're dealing with or, you know, they're trying to get their work done. So knowing that, you know, there are simplified colors that have the most meaning. And if you're going to use those other colors, educate your audience about what those other colors mean so that they're ready for them when they see those colors. Now, and speaking of colors, and I know this is something that Nate Johnson and I tried to kind of make a run at several years ago when I was president of AMS, um, but we reached out to the RDTN, which is, I guess, the radio, uh, digital television, and it's whatever their association is, about this idea that all entities should have the, a uniform color system because that we know that different local stations, perhaps the Weather Channel and other national outlets use different color schemes. Do you believe that would help in any way to have a standardized sort of industry mandated or, or set color scheme for everybody? Or is that just a, a bridge we probably shouldn't try to cross? Well, we've tried to cross it. Um, you know, like you're saying, you and Nate have worked on that. And I've been a part of workshops and, and programs that have talked about consistency and standards. And, you know, when you're dealing with television stations and broadcasters and the private sector, so to speak, they can do what they want to do. And um, a lot of times they're telling us their equipment only allows for certain colors. They're constricted by the colors that their equipment, their computers provide. And so to actually go to a standard set of colors to be more consistent would cost a lot of money or, you know, uh, create a lot of effort. They agree. You know, we've talked to them. We at uh, the National Weather Association meetings, we've had um, big workshops on this and talked about it. And they all agree, but they don't know how to make it happen because of these other factors that, that come into play. And so, you know, if that's the case, if there's all these challenges, then how do you try to be as consistent as you can, given the constraints? I think it's important to know that people recognize those basic colors. It's important to know what colors have what meanings for most people. And so that you're using those colors in a way that's going to reach the most people. And then again, you're going to have to be very responsible to educate your audience about what the colors you're using actually mean. And I'm very impressed with how hard the enterprise works to do that. But again, that means they got to be connected. If they're not connected, if they're not in that trusted relationship, and they don't see that graphic with those colors until right before an event, they're not sure what they're looking at. And I think that's what we worry about the most. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. We're talking with Dr. Laura Myers from the University of Alabama. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, by the way, from the University of Georgia. Uh, yeah, a couple more questions. I've got, I could talk to you all day. We just, uh, Weather Geeks producers, we need a part two on this because there's just so much I'd love to talk to Dr. Myers about. And, I, and we're running out of time in this particular episode. But I, I did tease in the opening to the podcast things like watch versus warning, even just, or even the enhanced, moderate, the types of things that the Storm Prediction Center uses. Um, are, I, mean, I know there are hazards, implication, and fast. A lot of things going on where I think the weather enterprise is moving in the right direction. Uh, but are there any sort of wording issues out there that catch your attention in your research that we need attention to? Well, there's always been the watch versus the warning issue. And I still hear stories of people who um, reverse the watch and the warning. Oh, sure. It's natural. I mean, you're watching the storm or you're warning that it's happening. It's just totally reversed in my mind, even. Exactly. Yeah, you can see how easily it happens. And so I think knowing that those things can so easily happen, it's like, you know, we're humans, you know, it's all about psychology, it's all about the way we're wired. And so if the enterprise is familiar with that, then you just always want to be using your outreach to explain that. So when you're going into a situation, remind people what the difference is between a watch and a warning. I really love, especially with severe weather, how the enterprise in advance of it will say, okay, we're waiting on a watch. And when a watch is issued, this is what it means. And this is what you should be doing during a watch. And then they'll go on and say, at some point, it may turn to a warning. And this is what you need to do when the warning comes. So they're explaining the process, which helps with the wording. And you have to do it every time because you don't know who you've missed in the previous ones. And people will forget and people will revert back to their psychology and get it confused. Like you say, you do it, I do it. And so I just really like it when I see that that constant, that consistency of reminder of those things. We also have to be careful of the words that are used. So you mentioned advisory. And so um, the Hazard Simplification Project has actually worked on that concept of advisory. Um, it was revealed in the Snowmageddon event in Atlanta several years ago that advisory was kind of weird for people. People thought it was a downgrade instead of an upgrade. So that led to a lot of work on doing something different with the word advisory. So there are things we can do. We can change products. We can change the use of wording. Um, so when you look at, you know, the, the severe weather scale, the thunderstorm scale, the words, you know, have meaning issues. When you talk about marginal and slight risk, the words marginal and slight to most people mean minimum. That means lesser. And in fact, the reality is it means more. You know, it's, it's there's a risk. And so that's a hard thing to explain to people and especially 
as an event is coming or an event's actually unraveling, that you're explaining all of this. And so there's been a lot of work done on that. And I'm very impressed again with the enterprise always explaining it, explaining what the colors mean, because there's colors associated with those words. And so just in the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of work being done to explain all of that and to help the public understand it. And again, the biggest issue is as long as you're connected and you have a trusted source, you get it. If you're not connected, then it's going to be hard to pick all that up on the fly. I guess this is going to be my final question. And I'm sad about it because I really joined this conversation. When you think about weather events, big weather events over the last, oh, 20 to 30 years, are there any big events that come to mind that you believe have helped sort of revolutionize and or change the way we fundamentally communicate weather and weather. For example, one that comes to mind for me is uh, Sandy, because there was this whole issue about whether we call it a hurricane or keep calling it a hurricane, or is it transitioning to a mid-latitude? And because people are arguing that people understood the threat better when it's a hurricane, as opposed to this transition to something else when it got up into the Northeast. So that's one that comes to mind for me. But are there other events that you think have fundamentally reshaped how we are thinking about communicating weather risk that in, in from your lens as a, as a, just as a person in society or as a researcher? Yeah. And I always come from my, you know, role as a person in society, because that's where I started with all of this. I'm not a meteorologist, you know, I'm just one of the public who, you know, is, is really, you know, consumed with getting that information. You know, I am Jane Q citizen. And so a lot of these events, have really illustrated the gaps in communication. And so I think Sandy is a really good example because that really illustrated what we call these things and what it means because it triggers a plan um, by emergency managers, by first responders, by government officials, as we you know name these things, as we you know say what they are. And so Sandy really illustrated how that changed what people did in preparing and planning for an event. And so it did, it revolutionized what we need to do. And I think that really goes to a lot of different hurricanes that we've had since Sandy. If you take um, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Matthew, Hurricane Florence, those were very unique storms that we had not really experienced anything like before. Those caused inland flooding like we've never seen before. And so I think those started to change the messaging about the impacts of these storms. And then you had Hurricane Michael, and it was like, okay, now we have to start preparing for these storms that are rapidly intensifying and trying to change the public's mind about these are not going to weaken, these are not going to divert, these may actually rapidly intensify, which means you're not going to have as much time to get out of the way, and you really need to get out of the way, and it's going to cause inland impacts like people have never seen or imagined before. So I think all of those really, you know, illustrate some pivotal changes in the way that we communicate about these things and we prepare the public for these things. We got to get them away from handling these um, events in traditional ways. These are not traditional events. They're you can't not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, our, our, our normalcy biases. I, I still remember hearing an interview with someone 
Uh, sorry, um, I, 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 I still remember hearing an interview with someone about Harvey and they were like, yeah, we get rain here in Houston on floods all of the time. So I mean, what's what we weren't really expecting a big deal. And I think the mindset is, yeah, we are used to rain, but the big challenge is Harvey's of the world. <laughs> They're just different generation of storms. So they're outside of the norm. And so we have to sort of, you know, move beyond that normalcy bias. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Harvey is a really good example of, of that because, you know, trying to imagine them, the amount of rainfall is a big issue. And, and that's another thing. We have events like Harvey now that are going to bring something like 54 inches of rain and the public can't imagine that. No. And so how do we change our messaging so we can help the public understand that? I thought Houston would understand 54 because they had 21 inches, you know, many years ago with Tropical Storm Allison. Allison, yeah. And and I lived there at the time and I was like, I, you know, these people are going to get 54 inches. They did not. Yeah. Well, when we just saw that recently and even I just wrote about this earlier in the week about a rainstorm in, in Auckland, a series of rainstorms in Auckland, New Zealand, that essentially gave them their, um, you know, entire month's worth of rainfall in 24 hours. I think these types of events are outside of the norm. And so it's just really important that people move beyond that. Uh, Dr. Myers, are there any websites or social media sites that you'd like to make our listeners aware of? Yeah, um, there's a lot of social media sites that I would suggest, uh, like the Storm Prediction Center, the National Hurricane Center, um, all of your National Weather Service offices. I think it's really important to look at their websites and their social media. Um, anytime an event is approaching, evolving, there's a lot of good information from those trusted sources on social media and on their websites. And it'll provide you a lot of good information. The Weather Channel is another good example. And so getting your information from as many sources as you can, trusted sources, uh, I think that's key. Your broadcast meteorologists, a lot of them have blogs. They have their social media sites. Um, and so get connected to those things. You can't imagine how beneficial it is um, to get that information on an ongoing basis. And in between events, you're going to get educational information from them. That because uh, there was something about that I wanted to actually mention it's because you have these events, you've got the weather channel and and then you've got your local broadcast meteorologist, local forecast offices and, and so forth. So, you know, I, I didn't want to circle back this before I let you go. Are there particular challenges at the interface of weather risk and uh, communication as it relates to the scale of the event? Yeah, there is. You know, like right now, we've got this big winter weather event that's crossing a big swath of the country. And so really trying to localize that information for specific locations is key. Um, so your big national um, channels, you know, your national networks, the Weather Channel, all those different entities are looking at that big geography of an event. It's your local entities, your local National Weather Service officers, your local broadcast meteorologists, and your local news that are going to help you identify impacts and what is happening to you more locally, more specifically. And you can also be part of that. The public can be part of that in their social media relationship about reporting what's happening where they're at back to their trusted sources. That helps their trusted sources indicate what's happening in locations. Now, are you on Twitter and have a social media handle you want to share? 
I am on Twitter at Dr. Laura Myers. And I recommend her. I do follow her. Great follow. Dr. Myers, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Before we get out of here, it's that time of the week of the podcast where we recognize our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. There's that word weather weenie you mentioned. Uh, This episode's Geek of the Week is Kathleen Lanier. Kathleen is a retired teacher who loves a cool, crisp fall afternoon with her grandkids telling them about isobars and fropas. I'm impressed with the fropas reference. Her most memorable weather event came in November 2004 when Southern California experienced thunder snow. Uh, you've got that in uh, common with our good Jim Cantori. Dr. Myers, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. It was a pleasure. And as usual, we are happy to have you. And I hope you really enjoyed that. I certainly did. And I really am serious about a part two with Dr. Myers because there were so many other places I could have gone in that conversation. And thank you all for listening in. And we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.